Uh, he killed his, his baby and he's in the house. Okay, you said that he told you he killed his baby. <laughs> okay, ma'am, listen to me. What's your name? Oh. Music and murder contains violence, oh. profanity, oh. and graphic material that may not be suitable for children oh. or people with weak stomachs. Oh. Parental advisory is definitely recommended. Well, hello. This is episode 25 of Music and Murder. I am your host, Michael D. Keeney. And for this episode, I bring thee a story of incest. A love story of incest at that. And then when love turns into non-love, non-love turns into hate. And hate, well, you know, it turns into murder. Now, I hope you're all good. I just got over being really sick for a few days, but I'm finally better, and I'm looking forward to sharing this evil and sinister story with you, because it is getting very close to Halloween. Now, I do have something special lined up for episode 26, which will drop on Halloween, because my favorite number in the world is 26, and I only get one single chance to put out an episode 26, you feel me? Now, in murder news, Royce Casey, the oldest of the three high school boys who worshipped Slayer and murdered Elise Paler in a ritualistic sacrificial manner, got denied parole once again by Newsom. Now, Gavin initially denied Casey parole back in 21, then he was granted parole by a judge who overturned Newsom in uh, 22. And then Gavin came back on September 28th, just last month, and said, No, no, bitch. I am the law in California. And then proceeded to retake Casey's parole away from him again by overruling the judge. Which I think might make some think that Newsom's balls are starting to actually drop. And he's kind of becoming a man, but rest assured they're not because Gavin doesn't have balls. And his vagina is beginning to get a lot wetter as he stays in office. Now also Newsom will never ever ever become president. So all of you Newsom lovers out there, which I think there's probably about three of you, don't get your hopes up too high because like the last dude you fell in love with, he will let you down and smash your ability to ever trust anyone ever again. Fuck love, right? Die alone because you think that some people are perfect because you think that yourself is perfect, thus everyone else should be, especially if you fall in love with them. Such a crying fucking shame that it doesn't really work that way. And finally, on this situation regarding Royce Casey, on the very next day, September 29th, Joe Biden showed up to the Chowchilla Men's Colony where Casey is being housed, and he had the guards open up his cell so he could smell him. And on that happy little note, here's a little bedtime story for all of you that are almost as fucked up in the head as I am. Welcome to the incest murders. 
I really hope that you enjoy your stay. Oh my god, don't you just love the rain? I absolutely adore the rain so much to where I may actually move somewhere someday again where it does rain. Because I live in California right now, so really the only place I get to hear it is on my podcast. Oh, if there's three things in this world I love, I definitely cannot mention them on this show. Now, for our story that I am going to kind of dub father doesn't always know best. (sighs) Stephen Platty was 24 years old. He was living in New York. He met an underage girl living in San Antonio, Texas via the internet. And back then, which was 1995, Not many people were able to meet on the internet because not many people had the internet. There was no Tinder, there was no, what is it, uh, fucking Plenty of Fish or any of these these fuck apps. There there was none of those. So after meeting the Sunderage girl online, Stephen then decided to make the 30-hour drive to take a shot at retrieving this young and vulnerable lady, which was likely the only thing that could ever get his little tiny dick hard. Now, the year was 1995, as I stated, and this young lady's name was Alyssa Garcia, and Alyssa was barely, barely 15 years old. And like I said before, Stephen was 24. Now, both of their parents were not happy with this little love affair, but they didn't bring the police into it. They didn't call the cops, no. Nor did they do anything else to stop it or hinder it. Alyssa, as you likely suspected, went back to New York to live with 24-year-old Stephen, who was almost 10 years older than her. While she was literally, literally a sophomore in high school. Now, how this was even possible, I have absolutely no clue, no answers. I was about Alyssa's age at this time in 1995, and I do remember teachers and other adults going to jail for just merely having sexual contact with underage girls that were 17. And here is Alyssa just 15, moving across the entire country with this 24-year-old pedophile Stephen Platy. But, however, things actually did work out for them for a while. Within two years, in 1997, Alyssa was pregnant by Stephen. She was 17, and Stephen was 26. In January of 1998, Alyssa gave birth to a baby girl. The two named this baby girl Denise. Now immediately, and I mean immediately, Alyssa began witnessing Stephen, the love of her life, 
physically abusing their baby Denise. The abuse that Alyssa witnessed was bruising and pinching all over the baby's body, which also left bruises as they were healing, right? The, uh, the pinch marks. And Stephen would also do something that I never heard about anybody ever doing to their kid. Stephen would put his own baby girl into an igloo cooler and shut the airtight lid and open it just in time for this poor baby girl to grasp for breath before suffocating. Yes, this is some seriously disturbing shit. And keep in mind, this is just what Alyssa saw him do with her own eyes. And there was even more that she claimed to witness but she refused to talk about. Now I know she may not have seen it, and maybe quite possibly she did, but I know, I know that he was sexually assaulting this baby too. He fits the profile of a diehard pedophile to the fucking T. I call them diehard because state and federal prisons make it extremely difficult for the other inmates to kill these sorry motherfuckers, which is a very sad thing. They should all be placed in general population and live out their fate. But no, we as taxpayers spend about an extra $50,000 a year to keep these sorry motherfuckers isolated and safe. Yeah, okay, calm down, rant over. So Alyssa is witnessing this abuse by Steven going on, and what does the 17-year-old child do? Try to guess, you know I love to do this to you, right? Guess what the 17-year-old girl, who was a brand new mother, did? Well, after just eight months of witnessing this horrible shit happening to her daughter, while she was likely being abused by Stephen herself, 17-year-old Alyssa had no choice but to give her daughter up for adoption, in hopes that her daughter could live out a normal life. Just a normal life. With parents that didn't fucking abuse her, and lock her in an ice chest and shit like that. Now, the adopting parents of baby Denise were Anthony and Kelly Fusco. All I can find was that they were in their 30s, and they loved Denise more than anything else in the world. Everyone who knew them said that they were amazing people that did everything for anyone that needed them, as most parents that adopt are. I have a degree in social work and I had to study a lot on the adoption process and it is very, very taxing. It's very taxing when you know what it actually entails. So many people have children that shouldn't have children, while so many good people that can't have children actually have a ton of them. It's just hard to witness sometimes. It's, it's hard to just hear these stories. So Anthony and Kelly become Denise's new parents. And being Denise was only eight months old, they of course changed her name and they decided to change it to Katie. After the adoption was complete, they moved Katie back to their modest but very loving home in Dover, New York. Now just shifting gears real fast because you know the RPMs are revving. There was a wrongful death trial in 1990. 
This trial consisted of a band called Judas Priest. Maybe you heard of them? I don't know. According to the plaintiffs that took Judas Priest to court, their two children, 18-year-old Raymond Bilknap and 20-year-old James Vance, took a shotgun and shot themselves in the face after listening to the album Stained Class. The plaintiff's lawyers stated that the men, who were heavily drunk and stoned, made a suicide pact after continuously listening to the second, not the first, the second song on the record called Better By You, Better Than Me, which is basically a song written about a dude that was all fucked up over losing his girlfriend and wanted someone else to tell her that he was going to go on a self-destructive rampage of sorts. I can't really be more specific than that because it's a 70s British song, so it's kind of all over the place. You feel me? So the main claim was that the song had subliminal messages, not backwards messages, but subliminal messages that said, let's be dead and just do it. I really do feel for the family for these two guys. I I really honestly do. I'm not just saying that, but let's be real. Even if those messages weren't subliminal, who gives a fuck? Those words can't make you kill yourself. These guys were drinking for six hours, and after a long talk, they made a suicide pact. And one shot themselves, and the other grabbed the bloody gun and then shot himself. And I'm assuming that one, at least one of them, had a girlfriend that he had just lost, so this this song kind of hit home. Now, one died instantly, the other was disfigured and held on for three years before dying from the self-inflicted wound. I'll likely do an episode on it in the future, but for now, here is the song that allegedly made these men kill themselves. And just to be clear, I don't fucking joke about suicide. I don't think that it's funny that these guys killed themselves or anything like that. There's there's two things that I will never, ever joke about. And one is suicide, the other is kids being killed or harmed. Those are off the table. Everything else, open fucking season. I'll laugh away at it and joke about it whenever I can, but not those two things. I have been devastated by suicides my entire life, and it's not funny, it's not a fucking joke, but, you know, like I said, this was not Judas Priest's fault. The words were not their fault. These kids decided, well, these these men, they called them kids in the trial, but they were 18 and 20, they decided to end their life. By the way, there has never, ever, ever been a ruling against a recording artist for any kind of death lawsuit over lyrics, which is justice in my mind, because there is this thing called the United States Constitution that prohibits such verdicts. Anyway, here's the first song that was ever blamed for killing anyone, at least in the United States. Better By You, Better Than Me, by Judas Priest, released in 1976 on their Stained Class album, and it's actually a cover that they did from another band called Spooky Tooth. I hope you like it.
Better by you, better than me. The original Spooky Tooth version fades out in the same exact way. So just a real quick retraction, that song is number three on the Judas Priest record Stained Class. And also real quick, the song became so popular by the suicide trial that the record label at the time which was Sony, believe it or not. Yes, Judas Priest was owned and still is owned by the Japanese. The song became so popular that Sony decided to release release all the newer stained class records with a live version of that song, Better By You, Better Than Me. Thus, all versions, including digital versions of that record, now include the live bonus track. It is number 11, all because two men allegedly killed themselves over that song. Go figure, you sue a band because of their lyrics, or in this case, subliminal messages placed in the song, and all you do is pay a shit ton in lawyer fees and make the band and their record label a shit ton of money, and your kids still don't come back. It's just a vicious world out there. And now, back to our story that is truly vicious and sinister and all around just whore-fucking-rific. Yeah, that's my word. Horrific with a fuck in the middle of it. And you know this because it's on my show. By the way, my name is Michael D. Keeney, and the D stands for dick. Thank you all for listening to this dick. And please follow this dick show on Instagram at music underscore murder underscore podcast. And this dick will follow you back. You ever been followed by a dick? No? It's very underrated. 
Okay, so back to the story. So 17-year-old Alyssa just put her eight-month baby Denise up for adoption because her piece of shit boyfriend and friendly neighborhood pedophile was abusing the baby in many different ways, including putting her inside of an igloo cooler until there was no more air, and then opening it back up right before she would expire. Now, remember this shit if you think you had a bad father. This guy was likely the worst father that I've ever researched. It is a twist from having to tell you stories about murderers having alcoholic and abusive fathers. This guy Stephen Platel was definitely fucked up and it was not his dad's fault. Twas his own. Man, I kind of love that word twas. I need to use it more. So Denise's new parents, Anthony and Kelly Fusco, or it's Fusco, I, I can't tell, but we'll say Fusco, renamed Denise Katie. Now, Katie grew up to be a very beautiful and very talented young lady. She was already receiving multiple acceptance letters from prestige colleges, and she was an amazing artist, which I will contest to because I was able to see some of her artwork. She wasn't Picasso by any means, but she was good enough to be a professional tattoo artist. Anywho, moving on. So what does 17-year-old Alyssa do now that she just gave up her baby for adoption to save that baby from her own piece of shit fucking pedophile dad? Really think about this one. She just gave up her eight-month baby to the adoption agency to protect the baby from this guy, so what now? Well, she of course marries him. And before you judge her, just remember this guy Stephen Plato was really all that Alyssa knew because nobody kept this motherfucker from taking her virginity, taking her out of her school when she was just a sophomore, and taking her away from her entire state of Texas and away from all of her friends, family, and support system. This girl was his possession for life once he did all of that. Stephen Plato was a huge piece of fucking shit, but he wasn't stupid. He read the handbook on how to take over a young lady's life and basically make them into a slave. It really boggles my mind how Alyssa was even able, how she was even able to muster up the courage to take this baby her, her baby girl Denise to the adoption agency because I'm sure, I'm sure she was beat to fucking hell by Steven for that. I'm honestly surprised. I'm very surprised that Steven didn't actually kill her. I really am. I'm very surprised. When I, it was one of the first things that when I read this story, I was like, how did she give up this baby girl without him killing her? So the two get married. Alyssa is now 18 and Stephen is 28 when they get married. So what now? Well, another nine years passes. Alyssa calls the police many times on Stephen for beating her and punching holes in the wall and throwing shit and doing all that what, you know, abusive dickheads do. 
but she still stays with him because like I said, Stephen owns this woman. It is called learned helplessness and he has owned her since she was 15 years old. And after all of this, after all of this, giving up her baby, dealing with Stephen's abuse for years and years, Alyssa gets pregnant again. And just two years later, she gets pregnant again, meaning that she had three daughters total, two after Denise was given up for adoption, who we will now call Katie because that's her real name. And both kids, like their older sister that was given up for adoption about a decade prior to their to their birth were both girls which just worked out great for Stephen Plato he couldn't be happier he couldn't be happier this fucking chomo he just loved to be surrounded by women that were young and vulnerable right now as far as Alyssa is concerned they've matured and remember Alyssa is his his wife now they've matured Stephen has calmed down a bit and they now have what it takes to raise their children right and responsibly. For the most part, in her defense, she was kind of right. Things did calm down. The police were called less. Neither of the young girls were supposedly put into ice chests or pinched until they almost bled. Hell, things were looking pretty goddamn good and calm until one day. The day, the D-Day you could call it, on this day that I speak of, there is a knock on their door, and you won't believe who it is. Maybe you can. Maybe you can actually figure it out. Who is it, Alyssa said before answering the door, and a small, almost timid voice from the other side of the door said, it's Katie, your daughter. Fuck. Can you honestly believe this? Of course it was bound to happen, and one night it did. Hmm, kind of sounds like a Garth Brooks song. But yes, it was bound to happen. Katie was a smart and very curious young lady that was not going to go off to college without meeting her real biological parents first. And why not? We'd all at some point want to meet the people that we were biologically made from, right? I mean, this is not about not loving your adopted parents or looking at them as your real parents, not at all. It's more about curiosity. In a way, it's kind of like seeing your own personal God. And before you think I'm talking blasphemy, really think about what I'm saying. Think about the term meet your maker that applies to meeting your biological sperm and egg donors, right? I mean, after all, these two people did literally create you. They may not have created all of mankind, of course, but they did technically create you. If nothing else, Meeting your biological parents would give you some sense of what and who you are. 
and what you would look like and will look like in the future. So why would you not want to see that? Well, Katie sure wanted to see that. I'll tell you what else she saw in just a second. And definitely, definitely, if you ever wanted to not stick around to hear the end of this story on any of my episodes, this is not one to fuck off. Because there's only one more part to this episode, and trust, you do not want to miss the shit that happens next. Happens Leaving tonight on my way to San Antonio. Feel out well before I'm home. It kills me that you're all alone. But loving the music, man, it would have used to be. It's Cadillacs and history. But you're still right here with me. dreams come true But if they don't well that ain't even a thing Give me nothing but a chicken wing Just listen to the song and sing Even though we ain't got money I'm so in love with you honey and everything Well oh, it's gonna be alright right here Sometimes it makes me shed a tear Sometimes it makes me drink a beer And no matter what, girly, we're gonna be okay Cause even when we're old and gray I'm gonna look at you and say
that there was my brand new single Ain't Got Money by Michael D. Keeney. Please do check it out on anything that you stream on if you did like it. Now to recap on our story. In 1995, 24-year-old Stephen Platel met 15-year-old Alyssa Garcia. The two had a baby girl just two years later. Alyssa had to give up the baby girl, whose name was Denise, for adoption when she was only eight months old because Stephen was abusing her in many different ways. Alyssa and Stephen did stay together, even though she had to call the police many times because Stephen would abuse her and tear up the house and do all the things that dickheaded abusers do, right? Now the couple did have two more baby girls about a decade later, even though Stephen continued to be an abusive cocksucker. And on top of that, this cocksucker couldn't even hold down a fucking job, which left Alyssa not only consistently abused, but she also had to pay all the bills while she was being abused. Then finally, around eight years later, in 2012, the first baby girl that was given up for adoption and was now named Katie shows up at the couple's door when she was 18 years old. So we're all caught up now, correct? Okay, <sighs> breathe. I talked about Stephen's abuse and inability to get and keep a job. And first of all, this is a pattern. People who have anger and temper issues will not only torture their partners for the entire time of the relationship, but they will also suck the life out of them financially. It's kind of a full circle abuse cycle. They will tear up your belongings, try to hurt you physically and emotionally, and then they won't even be able to contribute financially due to their inability to keep a job which also puts strain on their partner and makes it very difficult for their partner to leave because they're broke from taking care of that piece of shit person, right? So the cycle just never ends until something tragic finally blows up or something dies or someone finally goes to prison or all of the above. So back to the visitor. 18-year-old Katie is now at the door. Katie is young, vibrant, beautiful, wanting to meet and know everything about her biological parents, Stephen and Alyssa Platel. Now when Katie comes to the door, it wasn't unexpected. Stephen and Alyssa had exchanged messages with Katie after Katie found the couple on the internet. And they knew that she was putting off studying art in college and coming to stay with them for a while. They lived in Virginia, which is only about six to seven hours away from New York, where Katie lived and grew up with her adopted parents, Anthony and Kelly Fusco. So here's Katie meeting her biological mother and father and two younger sisters all at once. I want you to just take a second and really think about this. You lived almost your entire life knowing that you were adopted but not knowing any of your blood relatives at all. And then all of a sudden, boom, you now have a biological mother, father, and two sisters all at once. And all when you're just 18 years old. 
And if you know anything at all about psychology, you know that this could leave a young 18-year-old girl with some serious, and I mean serious, daddy issues. Borderline abandonment issues as well, but most definitely chronic daddy issues. Especially when you find out that daddy had kept his other two children, right? It doesn't get much more daddy issued than that. This stems mainly from Katie wondering how her dad could stay with her mother and keep both of her sisters, all while giving her away to another couple. This would seriously fuck anyone up. Now, it's one thing if you grew up adopted because of prison, because of death, or even poverty, drug addiction, or divorce. There was none of that here. It's disturbing that I read up on so much stuff about this story, watched everything available, and nothing was ever mentioned about this type of stuff. People should never do podcasts or tell stories about things such as this when they have no education on the subject. You know, like people that do makeup while telling these stories. And millions of people just love it because they don't have to think, right? People with no education, never seen an actual crime scene, never witnessed a body being cut open during an autopsy, never read a police report, knows nothing about forensics, DNA, RNA. Yeah, they kind of make me vomit in my mouth when I hear them try to tell their version of true crime stories. Because thinking is a good thing and knowing and being educated on these things is even better if you're gonna fucking talk about it, trust me. Okay, so Katie is now, in 2012, feeling about a thousand different and mixed emotions as she enters her bio family's home and begins one by one meeting everyone, especially her father, Stephen Plato, who looked a lot like Katie and wasn't a bad-looking guy, all things considered. I mean, he was healthy, not overweight, had nice hair. I mean, he by no means was Brad Pitt, but for his age, he looked okay. So Katie was kinda sorta crushing on him a bit, and as I say this, do not think I'm completely talking in a sexual way. She had daddy issues. She wanted him to accept her. She wanted him to love her. She wanted to have something make up for the fact that he left her and forsaken her for 18 fucking years. She wanted some vindication. And it was not just Katie that had daddy issues. Her dad, Stephen, who in my mind was a bona fide pedophile, also had daughter issues. His issues likely didn't stem from nothing more than the fact that his wife Alyssa was getting older and his daughter was 18 and she was very pretty. And like I said, Stephen was into younger women. I would like to point out that there are many different types and subtypes of pedophiles. I don't think that Stephen was an exclusive pedophile, meaning that he only liked younger women or kids. I think it was more just his preference, and I think that he would have likely molested any kid at any age as long as he thought he could get away with it. Now after Katie showed up, Stephen began to act quite differently. It was not a father-daughter relationship from the get-go. It was very obvious that Stephen was sexually attracted to Katie. He would talk different. He began to dress different. 
He began dyeing his hair. He also began going to the gym and basically doing everything Kevin Spacey did in the movie American Beauty when he was having his midlife crisis and fucking his daughter's friend. As far as we can look back into history, young women and old piece of shit erectile dysfunctional dudes were together. It has to have something to do with procreation. Now we're in an age where dudes like to jerk off to women in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. It's called granny porn and it's fucking huge. So this little flirty thing between Stephen Platel and his daughter Katie was getting worse and worse by the day. The two were basically eye-fucking each other every time they were in the same room and it did not go unnoticed by Alyssa or the other two children. It was very obvious that the two were attracted to one another. Alyssa tried to nip this attraction in the bud by disclosing to Katie that the reason that she had to give up Katie for adoption was due to the abuse by her father. And she did go into detail on this. She told Katie exactly what was going on with the ice chest and the bruising and God only knows what else. However, this did not thwart Katie's attraction to her father. In fact, it made it even worse. Perhaps the apple does not fall far from the tree after all. Maybe in some sick way, Katie was very masochistic and it aroused her to know that her father had abused her in the past. I've heard of much, much stranger feelings occurring. Regardless, trying to keep this father and daughter from having a full-blown sexual relationship was just a waste of time. They were attracted to one another, and soon, they would fall in love with one another. Within just a couple of months, just a couple of months, 40-year-old Stephen and his 18-year-old daughter Katie were having sex regularly. Not just once in a while, like daily. I suppose sometimes when a woman yells out, fuck me daddy, it's not just dirty talk, right? It does happen a lot more than you would think. Why? Because adults can keep secrets pretty damn good. I've heard of multiple cases of daughters having sexual affairs with their fathers as adults. Now I do believe many of them were sexually abused by their fathers when they were still underage, but they, they did still decide to continue it as adults. And many would actually marry one another. And the same with mothers and sons. This shit does happen, and you could say gross all you want, but this is your species that we're talking about. These incestuous fuck monsters are humans just like you are. And it doesn't only happen in Arkansas, no. Although that is the incest capital of the United States, followed by Kentucky, it does happen pretty much everywhere. So in November of 2016, Alyssa, Stephen's wife, Katie's mother, has had enough of this shit. She knows exactly what the fuck is going on, and she knows that it's not going to stop. So she files for divorce, and her and the other two kids move out. In May of 2017, Alyssa discovers an entry in her younger daughter's diary. The diary stated that her older sister Katie was pregnant, and that her dad was happy about the pregnancy. She then wrote that her dad was Satan, and when he died, he was going to hell. 
But only he wouldn't be the one being tortured in hell. He would be the one torturing people. This little girl was 11 years old when she wrote this in her diary. There's not a doubt in my mind, not in my mind that she grew up being both physically and sexually abused by Stephen Pleadle. Not a doubt in my mind. Now once Alyssa read this, she contacted the police. And even though the police confirmed that there was incest occurring, they couldn't do anything about it. Because I suppose that incest is kind of legal in Virginia. I, I don't know. I mean, later on we will talk about that, but they didn't do anything at that point. Now here's where shit really gets weird. On July 20th, 2017, a very pregnant 19-year-old Katie and her 41-year-old dad drove to Maryland, and the two got married in Maryland. Get it? Married in Maryland? Well, I thought it was funny, but of course I am a seriously fucked up individual. Just like the rest of the human race. Only some of us hide it, and some of us don't give two fucks. Now to be clear, Incest is actually not only illegal in Maryland, but if it is incest that both parties know about, it is actually a felony. So why they chose to get married there, I don't have a clue. They lied on their marriage application stating that they were not related, so maybe they just needed to be in a state that didn't have any records of Katie's name before she was adopted. I'm not sure. But either way, 19-year-old Katie and her 41-year-old father Stephen were now in love, pregnant, and married. So what could ever go wrong from here? Hmm. Now I would also like to point out, just in case you weren't already tripping balls enough on this true and very recent story, at the father and daughter wedding, there was only three people in attendance that weren't getting married. And I want you to guess who those three people were. Take a second, take a second, you'll get this. So in attendance at the marriage in Maryland incest festival was Katie's adoptive parents, Anthony and Kelly, and Stephen's mother, who was also Katie's grandmother who, by the way, you heard in the very beginning of this episode. Yeah, and we're almost back to that, trust me. Now, it's not every day that you get to see your son and your granddaughter, who is pregnant with your great-grandkid, get married in the same day at the same time. But this woman did just that. Now, you can see a real photo of this wedding on the show's IG at music underscore murder underscore podcast. And I tell you, it is definitely worth taking a look at. So back to what could go wrong. Well, let's discuss that. Just a couple of months later, on September 1st, 2017, Katie gave birth to her and her father's baby. The baby was a boy. Katie and her dad named the baby boy Bennett. So all in all, everything was good. For a while. Until one cold January day. There was a knock on the door at their residence. This time, it was the police. 
and the police were not a happy surprise. Somebody, and I'm guessing that that somebody was Katie's mother and Stephen's ex, Alyssa, had notified the police about their incestuous affair and their interbred baby. I know that calling the baby interbred sounds derogatory and bad in nature, but I don't know how else to word it. I feel horrible for this baby, but he was interbred from an incestuous relationship. So the Virginia police detain the couple and they take DNA swabs on both of them, as well as baby Bennett, and they are arrested for incest. During the preliminary hearing, Stephen's lawyer that his mother hired told the judge that Stephen was going through hard times with his wife Alyssa, and he immediately fell in love with his daughter Katie, who showed up at the door when she was 18. He also pushed the issue that the two didn't know each other, and their love outweighed the fact that they were related. I can't find the amount but Stephen was granted bail, and he was released upon paying that bail on the condition that he had no contact with his daughter Katie, the love of his life. He was also forbidden to leave the state of Virginia. However, the judge did not take away Stephen's right as a father to see his son Bennett, who was placed in Stephen's mother's care. And if I didn't mention it before, his mother's name was Grace. And Grace at this time was 72. The biggest problem with this was that Grace lived in North Carolina where Stephen had access to guns that were inside of Grace's house. Get where I'm going with this? I think that you do. Now at the same time that Stephen was able to go to North Carolina where he had access to his son Bennett and various firearms, the perfect storm began to brew. You see, just a couple of weeks later, Katie was also released on bail and ordered not to see or contact Stephen. However, Katie broke those orders, but she didn't disobey the court because she wanted to see her father slash husband. No. She broke the court order just to let Stephen know that she wanted to end their marriage and move back in with her adoptive parents, Anthony and Kelly. Now this was all way too much for Stephen, who was really not only an abusive pedophilic piece of fuck, but also clinically mentally ill. He suffered from what I call worthless pile of cunt disorder. So needless to say, being that all he had left in this world was Bennett and his daughter slash wife, and he was now losing them and looking at prison time, it was not a good mix. On April 11th, 2018, Stephen went to his 72-year-old mother's house to pick up his seven-month-year-old son, Bennett. He told his mother, Grace, that he was taking Bennett to New York to see his mother Katie in New York. Stephen then took his son Bennett back to his house and he strangled him to death. And then he threw him in the closet like the baby was a worthless pile of trash. He then got into his little blue minivan with multiple firearms and proceeded to drive six hours to Katie's home in New York. 
He got there right before the morning and he knew their schedule and he knew that that morning they were all going to leave to visit Anthony, Katie's adoptive father's mother in Connecticut. So he waited outside the house in his minivan for Katie, Anthony, and Kelly to leave the house. Kelly never did emerge, but unfortunately Anthony and Katie did, and Katie was Stephen's main target. When Anthony and Katie pulled away from the house, Stephen quickly followed, and I was able to see this on video camera, and you could see it too if you go to the right websites. It's pretty fucking eerie. Now when Anthony and Katie pulled up to the very first stop sign in their older model Toyota truck, Stephen pulled up quickly aside them and he began firing on the truck. In total, almost 30 rounds were fired and Katie and her adoptive father Anthony were both shot multiple times and they were pronounced dead at the scene. There was a New York firefighter close to the scene and he responded immediately by calling 911. This is the actual 911 call. 911, what's the location of your emergency? Hello, this is uh, Connecticut. It's on Route 7 and Route 55. Someone just went by and shot this guy in the truck. Shot somebody just went, shot somebody in a truck on, on, on Route 55, sir? Yes, right beginning of Route 55 and Route 7. It just happened. I'm a fireman out in New York. The car pulled up, went around him, shot him. Whole clip pulled into his head. Okay, sorry. Is, is you still with him? We're here at the road. Where? Right at the intersection? Yes, sir. Right is at he, the intersection. Is, okay, sir. He's deceased, boss. The he, truck's in the middle of the road. He, he's dead? Yes, sir. Brains are on the road. And he was shot. Did you see the person who shot him? Yeah, we pulled up. There's a whole... Yes. Who? Okay, which way did the vehicle go? Headed toward New Melford, down Route 7. Down Route south. 7? What, can you describe the vehicle to me? It's a blue minivan with, I believe, a South Carolina plate. Blue minivan, South Carolina plate? Yes, sir. A light blue minivan. Okay, sir, just stay on the line with me. It was right after this 911 call when dispatchers received the 911 call from Grace, Stephen's mother. He killed his wife, he killed her father, and he, I can't even believe this is happening. Okay. He left the baby dead when he left. The police found Stephen's blue minivan immediately, like within two minutes and just five miles away from the crime scene. As they approached the minivan from behind, screaming with their guns drawn, they were met with silence. They could see Stephen, but they were baffled that there was no movement, especially since the van was still running. As they got closer, they realized that Stephen was dead with a self-inflicted wound to the back of his throat. Stephen had put the gun into his mouth and he pulled the trigger at last ending this reign of terror that he put upon everybody in his path. His ex-wife Alyssa stated that as bad as she felt for baby Bennett, Anthony, and Katie, she was glad that at least Stephen was dead and she no longer had to look over her shoulder in fear that he was there because she had to do that since she was 15 years old. And that wraps up another happy episode of Music and Murder. I really want to thank all of you for listening. 
And I want to remind you that just because you're paranoid, it doesn't mean that they're not out to get you. Because they are. They always are. Even if they're fucking related to you. I will talk to you again on Halloween. Have a beautiful, beautiful few days. Thank you.